You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We're in about 20 episodes now, and I've really enjoyed making it for you. We would love your feedback on the show. Please visit our website at startupsforgood.com and click on survey. It'll only take you about five minutes, and we'd really appreciate it. It will help us make the show better. Thank you. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm Miles Lasseter, your host. On today's show, I talk with Ben Chesler. It's impressive what he's done with Imperfect Foods, grown it from just an idea as a college student, and now not that many years later, it's a massive company. The idea was simple. Recover some of the 6 billion pounds of ugly, quote unquote, fruits and vegetables that go to waste every year on US farms and provide customized boxes of produce delivered to people's doors for 30% less than grocery store prices. From a small warehouse in the Bay Area in 2015, they grew the business over the next five years to over $500 million in sales across the country, having raised over $100 million in venture funding. Along the way, they expanded into grocery to become the largest mission-driven online grocery store in the U.S., or so I'm told, committed to building a business the right way with full-time employees and full benefits. They are proud to provide living wage jobs for over 1,500 employees. You know, in the, in the podcast, he says 4,000 employees. Over his years at Imperfect, Ben wore pretty much any hat you can wear from COO to CTO to head of strategy. He now sits on the board. Since leaving Imperfect, Ben has started advising and mentoring mission-driven social entrepreneurs so they can avoid some of the mistakes he made. He says he's been a social entrepreneur since before really he knew what those words meant. He just likes solving problems. While in high school, he co-founded a nonprofit that went on to raise $100,000 to combat child sex trade. In college, he started the Food Recovery Network to bridge the gap and recover food and donate it to food banks and shelters in the community. Over the next four years, they scaled Food Recovery Network to 200 colleges across the country, and it became the largest student movement against hunger in the U.S. Truly amazing stuff. On this episode, we discussed, do you put customers, employees, planet, or investors first? What is the definition of a good job, and how do you build one? When and how they sought customer feedback. We talk about co-founder relationships, highs and lows of building this company, and how to raise money as a mission-driven business. I think you'll really enjoy, so stay tuned. Ben, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Miles, thanks for having me. Really, uh, really glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk about so much of your story here, but I'd love to dive in by getting your perspective. How would you rank, if you had to force rank them, customers, employees, planet, and investors? You're going to, you're going to put a gun to my head and force, force me to rank them, huh? No, no ties or anything like that. You know, I want a strict ranking here. Um, I'm going to say planet employees, customers, investors in that order, top to bottom. And why? So, you know, again, I think it's more nuanced than just a straight list, but one, which is we're facing a real climate crisis. 
without the planet, the, the other three don't exist, I guess is what I would say. You know, without customers, the business is going to be really tough. But without the planet, there's going to be no people. And so, for, you know, I think we all, no matter what we're doing, have a part to play in mitigating climate change. Um, and that's actually why we started Perfect. And I actually think our customers, employees, and investors all love our dedication to the planet. So uh, for me, it's kind of a no-brainer to put that one first. Employees, you know, employees and customers are so close together. I think you always want to do right by the customer, but your employees are the people, and I think back to when we started Imperfect five years ago, they're the people who put blood, sweat, and tears, you know, sweat equity, everything into the business and believed in it. And I think you have to believe in them and prioritize them if you're going to want your business to succeed. And part of this is just a personal choice, which is I don't want a cutthroat business where I put my customers first at all costs at the uh, kind of to the detriment of my employees. I want one where everyone wins, but I'm always going to stand up to my employees. And so, you know, a great example is we're going to make it right if something goes wrong, you know, with an order for a customer, but I have no tolerance for, you know, anybody disrespecting or, um, you know, getting angry at one of my employees. That's where we draw the line. Customers, obviously, super important to keep happy. And investors, I mean, you know, look, you know, this is, you forced me to rank them here, but I would never say, you know, investors are last by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they give us the capital and allow us to do what we want to do. But when push comes to shove, yeah, that's how I'd order it. Thank you for that. In my first startup, I used to talk about employees first, customers, then investors. And I didn't talk much about Planet. But I really had the sense that even the best way to serve the investors was to make sure employees are taken care of and they'll take care of customers and investors will be happy from the results of that. Generally in agreement with your, your ranking there. That's good. That's good. And, and so I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be asking you questions, but, but when, when did kind of the planet come into your consciousness? I'd say we didn't see that as a mission of our startup at the time. You know, since yep. then I have been more engaged personally, philanthropically and investing in companies that are focused on planet. But uh, for me, I think then this may be a difference you and I have. I, I'm focused on the wellness of people primarily and call that speciest if you want to, but that is my uh, ranking. Um, so I'm interested in planet primarily as a means to improving the well-being of people. It could be a whole hour-long conversation there, but I appreciate that perspective for sure. Yeah, I'm sure not everyone agrees, but that's when it comes down to if I had to force rank it, that's how I think about it. You know, and that and that's coming from someone who's been vegetarian and vegan for short periods, but um, and and other yeah. things. But I also wanted to talk to you about uh, when you started a company. It's another parallel between our careers. You started a company while you were a college student, and I'm curious looking back, if you would recommend that someone do that? Yeah, you know, this is this is a really tough question. I think that I really believe in the power of, you know, young people with ideas to change the world. And I don't believe that, you know, you have to be an expert to solve a problem. And I think that's often kind of a way that big companies and potentially the older, you know, older generations um, kind of keep the status quo is by having these gates around innovation, entrepreneurship and capital. And so, uh, I actually started, uh, co-founded a nonprofit in high school, two nonprofits in college, and then Imperfect as well while we were in college. I believe those experiences were far more valuable than the academics in any of those places. Uh, I believe it sets up uh, a lifelong kind of, sets you up for lifelong entrepreneurship success. All that being said, it definitely helps to be 
in the industry that you're going to be disrupting. And I'd say at the very least, it's really important that you understand the customers and deeply understand their pain points. And sometimes you can do that in college. Sometimes it takes 20 years in an industry to understand what the pain points are. And so I don't think it's a one size fits all answer, but I do, you know, we didn't know the first thing uh, about farming um, and we didn't even talk to that many customers when we started Imperfect. We just knew, you know, this problem had to be solved. And I do sometimes wish that, that we had had a little bit more experience before starting it. So why didn't you talk with customers and what do you think flowed from that? You know, we, we did talk with some customers. I don't want to tell ourselves totally short, but, you know, we started Imperfect to solve an environmental problem. We saw that there were 20% of the fruits and vegetables in the U.S. were going to waste, never even left the farm. That's 6 billion pounds of food. And at the same time, you know, groceries are expensive and there's millions of people who are food insecure. And we said, this is a ridiculous problem. Let's solve it. You know, we didn't start this from customers were clamoring for ugly produce, right? Or customers were clamoring for, you know, 30% off grocery store prices. We, you know, we, we gut checked and did surveys. I remember in Berkeley at the farmer's market to see if customers were open to the idea. But I think we didn't, you know, we didn't come at this from a customer perspective because we came at it from an environmental perspective. And I'm happy to talk more about kind of how that influenced the evolution of the company because I think it really did. But we, we picked the customer perspective up later than most. Uh, I think just happened to catch on to an idea that uh, whose time was ripe, kind of no pun intended for someone to take, take it on. I get it. I get what you did there. I really would love to dive into this more because it is so counter to central dogma of startups, like build something people want, talk to customers, talk to humans, get out there, get out of the building, these kinds of classic things you're told in startup uh, learning. So did you, were you unaware of those things? Why do you think you were able to skip over that and still have such a positive response from people? Yeah, I don't think we were intentional in ignoring it. Um, I, you know, neither, neither, you know, myself nor my co-founder Ben Simon came from an entrepreneurship background. You know, I took one course in college with uh, Danny Warsh, who is an amazing professor, and now, now I count as a friend. My senior year, when I knew I was starting the business, but we didn't come from the entrepreneurial kind of background, although we had started organizations before, and so it just never really. Uh, occurred to us that that's how you were supposed to do it. It was just, it was so unconscionable to us that there was all this food going to waste that we knew it had to be solved. And as long as customers were willing to buy it, we had a business. So again, I don't want to sell ourselves short because we wouldn't have had a business if customers didn't you know, want this. But I think that the idea was just so ripe and the value proposition ended up being really strong, which is basically reduce food waste and save money you know, 30% off the grocery store to start that it resonated. And then I think over the first year or two, we really started to learn how to listen to our customer. And I think without hiring some of the people we hired really early on who had more of that background and who kind of were listening to the customer, that's really what allowed us to succeed is surrounding ourselves with great people. And how did you know how to do that kind of hiring? Did you learn that from your previous nonprofits? Trial by fire, which is pretty much how we learned to do everything. We definitely had, we, we had experience um, with the nonprofits and our CEO and my co-founder, Ben Simon, had been executive director of one of the nonprofits and had hired a staff of about 10 people. And so we had experience there. 
a lot of it was listening to advisors and surrounding ourselves with good people. And uh, a lot of it, yeah, was, 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 you know, was kind of, you know, two steps forward, one steps back. We'd hire someone that worked. We'd hire someone that didn't, you know, we'd hire two people that worked. We'd promote someone that worked, you know, we'd promote someone too fast. And so I think we really learned by doing it in some senses, you know, we raise venture capital from day one, but we're, we're not your typical, I don't think, venture founders. You know, I think we were kind of seen as a bunch of hippies who were trying to reduce food waste. Uh, once we realized what we had, we learned a lot really quickly in terms of how to run a venture. So how did you raise money from venture capitalists and a lot of money from what's been publicly reported? How did you do it as these quote unquote hippies, not the typical founder? The first round was, was tough. You know, I remember, you know, talking to 30 people and different firms and someone said, Hey, well, have you talked to any seed stage investors? And I, I literally remember, I was like, what's a seed stage investor? Like, you know, we, we, we were just getting, you know, connections, 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 you know, somebody says no and pass you on to anybody else, but we had no idea the right way to do this. And, and, and in advising startups now I'm like, Oh my God, I can pass on so much wisdom of what not to do. But I think really is one, we hustled. Two is we happened to stumble upon some really aligned, mission aligned investors. And so I'll just give a shout out to this group called Gratitude Railroad, which gave us around $250,000, $300,000. And they were our, basically our first check um, in the door. And they were just starting a bunch of ex hedge fund and Wall Street guys who really believe that they could do, they could have outsized returns by doing better for the planet and doing better for the world. And I think we were their first investment and it was just kind of a match made in heaven that we happened to find each other. And the other thing that I think I would say is we had a lot of really good press connections from our days of Food Recovery Network. And we, and, and my co-founder especially, Ben, was really good at telling the story in a compelling way. And so a great example is the day we launched in Oakland, we served five zip codes and we were on the front page of the New York Times food and wine section or food and drink or whatever it's called. And I think we had, you know, we were on the Today Show a few days later, we had CBS, all of the major news networks um, knocking on our door. And so that drummed up a lot of inbound interest from angel investors because we got that press. So that press was more helpful for investors than it was recruiting customers, right? Well, totally. I mean, it was, it was really funny that like, uh, it makes me rethink whenever I read about, you know, a company in the news, because people must've thought we were this huge business and we were literally like five people in a warehouse and we only delivered to a hundred thousand possible customers out of the 300 million in the U S. So we had people all over the U S go on our website, seeing they couldn't sign up and probably, you know, leaving us their email or, 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 you know, forgetting about us. It was far more helpful with investors than with customers. And I actually remember after we got the New York times article, we knew it was coming. And so I was bracing the website for a few, you know, huge influx of customers. And we probably got, you know, 50 signups or whatever, you know, not bad. A few weeks later, we had like 200 signups in one day. And I was like, did we get some press? What am I not hearing about? Like, and it turns out somebody on Reddit had asked, what's a really good kind of food delivery CSA style option in the East Bay? And someone was like, oh, I love Imperfect Foods. And that comment in response got us far more signups than the New York Times, you know, cover, um, which, which I think speaks to the power of kind of how media is changing. But that's also another topic. Yeah, that's like turbocharged word of mouth in a way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, referrals were a huge 
part of what we did from day one um, and probably propelled our growth solely by referrals for the first year or two of our business. Going back to fundraising, Gratitude Railroad is known as an impact investor, but many of your investors who've invested later are not, correct? Correct. Yeah. Some of them might tell you they are, but no, they're not. And so how did you make that transition and what impact did it have on the business uh, going from the impact oriented to not as impact oriented? Totally. And, and it's, you know, although Gratitude Railroad is impact oriented, their thesis is they can create bigger returns for their LPs by investing in, in companies that do good for the planet. And so, you know, I don't think they have a thesis that they have to sacrifice returns, financial returns for impact. And I think that that kind of made the transition easier for us to, you know, investors like Maveron, Insight, you know, Norwest, because they all knew that our brand and actually how authentic our brand was, you know, the fact that we really cared about the planet was one of the leading drivers, you know, customers signed up and we still, and you know, you used to, and still have data that shows that that is a huge driver that customers want to know that their purchases are improving the quality of life on this planet um, and improving the health of the planet and reducing food waste. And so they knew that there was no choice between impact and scale that, you know, we could only scale with impact and that our impact could only, you know, occur with scale as well. And so for some, you know, for us, it was the more produce we sell, the more pounds we recover from the fields. Um, and so, you know, like I said, you forced me to rank them, but we were all winning, including the planet, uh, when we were when we were growing. This is something I really believe, which is early investors who buy in with the mission can help propel that business forward so that the business becomes attractive to those that don't have that mission lens and the mission gets baked in. You guys did such a good job of it. The mission being baked in, as you're saying, with the success commercially of the business, in which case even a very mercenary investor coming in later wouldn't want to rip it out because they would be destroying commercial value. Exactly. I think, you know, it's, are there small trade-offs that get made along the way? Like, yes, for sure. But in the grand scheme of things, we fully believe that the mission that delivering on our mission returns kind of, you know, gives our, gives the greatest returns to, you know, to our stakeholders. And we screened for investors, you know, that believed in that, you know, we didn't encounter too many investors that were kind of, uh, you know, I would say dumb enough to say, Oh, well, we want to take the mission out of imperfect foods, but uh, we were definitely looking for investors that, that bought into the idea that our customers cared about the planet and that was going to be our strategic advantage. Any particular trade-offs that come to mind, just so that listeners and founders who may be early in their journey are going in eyes wide open? There's not that many specific ones that come to mind, but I would say, look, it's not a, every, every company is going to have trade-off. Even if you're a nonprofit, right? You know, you would give away all the money, but it, then you're not going to have any money to, you know, to run the nonprofit. I would just say that, you know, there are times where growth comes at the expense of perfection, I guess, if that makes sense. So like, you know, we've been working for years to make our packaging more sustainable and we are making gains on that. Um, our customers care about it. Morally, we care about it, right? But we didn't stop everything we did until we found the perfect solution. And so what I would say is if, if you're going to be a purist when it comes to impact, which is like 100% impact or nothing else, then venture capital or traditional venture capital 
might not be the right fit for you. Or if you have a company where you don't feel like the mission is embedded, but you want to do something good on the side. So for example, if you have a t-shirt company and you want to give away all of the profits to charity, right? That might not be compatible with venture back because if you're giving away all the profits to charity, how your you know, backer is going to make their returns. But it's much less of a problem if you embed the mission in the growth plan. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. Did it make any difference to you being a B Corp? You're talking about like registering as a, as a public benefit corporation? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that was a choice we made. It was more a statement than anything else. To be honest, the regulations right now are still pretty weak. I'm hoping, you know, I've been hoping for five years that they, the policy would change and the IRS would start to recognize some tax benefits there. But for us, it was just a statement and it was also protection. And we're still a benefit corporation that in the event of a sale, we want to be able to maximize, you know, we, we, we do not want to have to be legally required to only think about profit, right? We still think about profit all the time. But, you know, the reason that the certification and the private corporate status came about is, as, as I was told the story, at least, you know, Ben and Jerry's didn't, didn't necessarily want to sell to Unilever. I think it actually worked out for both parties. But, you know, they were a public company and they had to maximize value for their shareholders. And so it just gives you a little bit of wiggle room to say, hey, look, if there's really a terrible, evil person that wants to buy our company and they're going to squash the mission, you know, we have a right to say, no, that's not what we want to do with the company. Yeah, I think it's great that you're pointing to that point of sale. Uh, we had Professor Lynn Stout on the show a little while back talking about the myth of shareholder value, that there's no duty that you have to maximize shareholder value except in that very endpoint decision of sale. Yeah, I think, yeah, or at the very least, that you know, I'm sure she knows more than I do, at the very least, that's when you're more likely to have litigation. And so anything you can do to prevent, you know, to protect yourself. I think is important there. So what was it like starting a company with a friend? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and I do consider Ben a friend, but it's funny because we met basically when we started the Food Recovery Network. So we knew each other through the kind of context of working together. And I always joke that because I was on the board of Food Recovery Network and he was the executive director that I was his boss for four years. And then when we started Perfect, he became my boss, although he was always running this show. It is the best thing in the world. And it's definitely different than a traditional friendship. We love going camping together. I remember I would say, make sure if you're going to start a business with a friend, make sure you, you work well together. And again, because we met through work with the food recovery network, we knew we worked well together. And not only that, we knew the kind of, you know, Batman, Robin, you know, leader, sidekick kind of one, two role that worked for us. And so we were able to do that, but uh, I would just say, if you're going to start with a friend, try it out and um, make sure you're, don't prepare to lose the friendship, but make sure you're willing, make sure you both align on what you would do when push comes to shove in terms of prioritizing the friendship or the business relationship. And did you have to do that? No, no, we were lucky enough that we never had to do anything close to that. Um, again, mostly because we, you know, we met through a working context and we knew we worked well together and the friendship was, was usually based around, you know, working together, you know, we lived together for the first four months, you know, decided that working 16 hour days and, you know, eight hours <laughs> living together was too much. And so decided to, you know, you know, to, to live separately, but 
um, you know, I don't think it ever strained our friendship. Um, we just needed a few hours a day apart. I lived with my brother and worked with him on a company. And then we took a trip together and the airline attendant was very distressed that we weren't sitting together. And we were like, it's fine. It's fine. We also train together for running race. Like it's okay. We work together. We live together. We could take a flight apart. Anyway, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Looking back, what, what are the highs and lows that really stick out to you? I think the highs are, there's a few and there's one that, you know, the, 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 the holiday party every year was always a high and not, not because I actually cared about the holiday party, but, you know, we, we experienced some really rapid growth. I think we went from like 12 to 60 to 200 to 1200 to 4,000 employees. And so, and, and so every year it was amazing kind of at the holiday party, looking at one, how far we'd grown um, to the people that had been there for, you know, three, four or five years with us. And really like, I remember that first holiday party where we had people who worked for a year or two who had kind of left other jobs to take jobs, like people who are working in our fulfillment centers, who had careers, who like brought their kids and brought their wives and husbands and partners and said, I'm an Imperfect Foods employee. And like, this supports me, pays for my kid to go to school or pays for my family to put food on the table. That was one of the proudest moments. From day one, we wanted to create good jobs for people. It was, you know, we always paid uh, a living wage, gave benefits and stock options to all of our employees, even down to, you know, the drivers. And it was something that was important to us. And so knowing that we had actually created jobs for people was, was one of the best feelings I could ever imagine. So that's definitely one of the highs. Another one of the highs was I think across... Just across 20, say 2017, 2018, we expanded really rapidly from San Francisco to LA to Portland to Chicago to Texas and eventually to Baltimore. And that was just such a fun time where you'd open new centers, customers were clamoring for you to come, the orders would come in, you're hiring the team, you're figuring stuff out as you go. It was like, it was, that was the rocket ship. And I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that year again. That was, I think, another one of those highs. In terms of lows, I would point to two. I think one, just like raising that first round was really hard. And I think you start, you get so many no's that you start to get down on yourself a little bit. And so, you know, I think that was really tough knowing that we had such strong conviction that what we were doing was going to be huge and was going to matter. And, you know, all you're getting is, well, I'm worried about Amazon or I don't think it's going to be big enough. And why would people want to get a box of you know, veggies delivered? And it makes you start to question if you're not strong enough, kind of question your own, is this big enough? Like, is this a good idea? And so I think that was tough. And the second one was, I think, when we expanded into grocery in 2018, we had some missteps along the way and took a little bit of time to really figure out what our customers came to expect from us and also service some assumptions about the customer, you know, from our customers they had about us that we didn't know they had about us. You know, there was kind of a period of confusion of what does the brand stand for now? What are you doing? And um, I think it took a toll on us and we, we righted it pretty quickly and I think came out even stronger and figured out what, you know, we did stand for as a grocery company, not just a produce company. But um, I definitely remember that was kind of some internally employees were saying, you know, what, why am I here? What, what do you stand for? And um, that was really tough. How did you resolve that? We listened to our employees. So we had lots of listening sessions with our employees. We had lots of listening sessions with our customers. And we kind of separated out the fact from the noise, I guess. So it's like, why are you, you know, why does this change worry you? 
oh, well, we, we of course know you have to go into grocery, but like, we just want to make sure we're still selling really sustainable products. Okay, great. I can work with that. Or, hey, I get that you're selling grocery, but like I, everything else has been branded and perfect. Why are you selling third-party brands? Oh, okay. It's the brand that matters to you. We can work that. We, you know, we launched our own private label of brands, for example, that all have kind of a sustainability or food waste mission or, you know, are, are, are affordable for our customers. And that is really resonating with them. And we redoubled down. We kind of had a strategic session too on what does Imperfect stand for as we're shifting and bringing employees into that process created some real, real buy-in. You said one of your highs was creating a lot of good jobs. Aside from compensation and benefits, how do you create a good job? There's a few ways to look at this. And I, I do believe that benefits, ownership in the company, and a fair wage, a living wage, are the core of it. You know, I think a lot of these tech companies, there, so there are other components. I think a lot of these tech companies talk about, oh, well, you give unlimited paid time off and you're always you know, paying for them to go to classes at you know, General Assembly. It's like, okay, that's great because you have a completely white collar workforce, right? That's all making $150,000 a year. But how do those strategies we think expand to, you know, we call blue collar jobs or people in our fulfillment centers are drivers. And there's a few other things that I think we value. So one are uh, opportunities for advancement. That was something we kind of didn't realize early on, but really picked up on is that people want to better themselves. And they want to, they want to know the path of if I do X, I can achieve Y. If I, if I put in my time and I step up and I'm a leader and I'm always on time, you know, I can get promoted to a, a supervisor. And if then I improve my metrics on my line and keep my team, you know, at a, at a high you know, productivity level, I can become a manager, right? So they want to know how they can improve. And I think we underestimated at first totally the desire to improve from our frontline associates. The other thing is you got to get security. People, I think, value security that they know their job's going to be there in a year. Um, and I think if you can give people security, opportunities for advancement, living wage, and, a, and a, a stake in the success of the company, which we did through employee stock options, then people are going to be on your side and good things are going to happen and interests are going to be aligned. You talked about people having a sense of advancement and what their career path is and stability. When you look at your career path through the company, you wore a lot of hats and a lot of change, starting off as COO, I think ending up as chief innovation officer. How did you think about that progression? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call that advancement or just kind of, you know, figuring out which hat fit best. I think a lot of it is around the the right role for the right stage of the company. And I think, and this is something I, I hope to, to potentially write about someday is a company with multiple founders, the non-CEO founder has a very interesting role to play, right? And so sometimes it's really easy, right? Someone's the CTO, they're the technical founder, right? obvious that that's going to be the role. Someone comes in with a marketing background, they may CMO. You know, I came in with a college degree and that's about it. And so I think it took me a little while to find my place in the company. And I think that changed as the company grew. So, you know, I led operations and that was my passion kind of um, throughout life, systems thinking, finance, fundraising, operations, strategy. And so, you know, at the beginning of the business, that was COO. I ran the warehouses, I ran the pack line, I built the financial models, you know, I did the um, kind of forecasting, all of that labor management, all that stuff. And then we got to the place where you realize that I, I could do it, but I was learning on the job every day. And there were far more qualified people to run an operation 
the size of ours, especially one that was so kind of uh, logistically intensive. And so we hired a COO. I also realized that what I loved doing was starting things, building an MVP, building a prototype, getting them off the ground and then passing them off to someone else. And so that's kind of how we moved to the chief innovation officer role is realizing that I was going to build teams from zero to 10, zero to 20, six months to a year, do the customer discovery, figure out what was working, build the business model, and then pass them off to kind of a functional leader. Um, and that's the role I kind of served in for the last three years of the company. And those projects you started off, did they become major business lines? Yeah, I wouldn't say uh, business lines is, is, is probably, some of them did, and some of them were more internal improvements. So one of them was uh, a lot of the automation in our warehouses. I did kind of the V1 of that, you know, moving from fully human picking to kind of technology-assisted human picking. Two was moving from third-party couriers for delivery to having our own drivers deliver was a big project, um, which we still do to this day. And the third, which was probably my biggest and longest project, which I spent about two years on, was grocery. And that was expanding from Imperfect Produce to Imperfect Foods. And that was what I would call a new business line. Many companies struggle with expanding their product set. Why do you think you were successful making this transition? You know, one of my lows was during that transition. So I don't think it was all easy, but I think it was successful in the end. And I think it was successful because going full circle here, we finally were listening to our customers. We expanded the product line for two reasons. One, because we knew there was a huge amount of food going to waste outside of produce that we wanted to capture. But two, because we were hearing from our customers that we were satisfying the affordability value proposition. We were satisfying the sustainability value proposition, but we weren't cutting it on convenience. They were saying, if you just carried eggs and milk, I wouldn't have to go to the grocery store. If you just carried chicken and other products, just go to the grocery store. I wouldn't have to go to the grocery store. And I'm looking for a brand to do my shopping with that aligns my values. And so I think that that was a natural progression for us. And our customers were clamoring for it. And I think that's what makes it so easy. In some senses, it's, it's unnatural to just have a produce delivery description. So the grocery was a far more natural evolution. And I do think it was easier for us because we were going into a category that was established. I didn't have to convince people to buy groceries every week. I just have to convince them to buy groceries from us every week. And I think that's a far easier transition than a new business line that might not exist. That makes sense. Now, both you and Ben have transitioned out of day-to-day roles in the company. What's your relationship like now with the company? With the company, yeah. Still, still shareholders. Um, uh, I'm still a board member. I would say a very good relationship. I think it's, you know, sometimes it, it can be a good thing to have the founders move on and have a new set of eyes take a look at it. So um, I am incredibly grateful to our board, the rest of the board and, and Philip Bain, our, uh, our, our CEO and the whole executive team for taking the company to the next level. But no, definitely still have a good relationship with the company, I would say. Now you've been spending some time advising startup founders is there anything that comes up as a reoccurring point that you want people to know? Yeah, I think a lot of it that comes up is around, I think two things. One is how to raise capital. <laughs> two is kind of what stage I'm going to be at. Like when I, like what's, what milestones do I need to hit to raise capital? And some of that is very specific to the business. The third is how do I jumpstart the flywheel of growth? And I'm by no means an expert in that. Um, I mentioned, you know, we did it through press 
and then a series of other things. Um, how do I jumpstart that flywheel? And I think fourth is the thing I've learned advising startups is it's, it's lonely. And a lot of the founders I work with just want somebody to validate that they're not crazy. Hey, I had this idea, but I just want to make sure, you know, <laughs> this makes sense. Or I'm thinking through this problem. Can you help me think through it? I mean, I think I forget having worked at a, what grew to a large company that I was surrounded by amazing people. And when you start out, you don't have anybody to gut check those things. And I think that's really important. And that's the one thing I would tell founders is whether it's an advisory board, a co-founder, some consultants, bring people you can trust into the fold early because it will, those multiple perspectives will make the business more successful and it'll just make it more fun as well. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Startups, don't do it alone. Uh, where should people follow you online? Honestly, I, I'm, I'm much less interesting, but feel free to hit me up on, on LinkedIn um, if you're interested, but really go to imperfectfoods.com and check out what they have to offer. That is far more interesting than anything I can tell you. But if you message me on LinkedIn, you want to get in touch, I'm always happy to, to help out and, and see if there's a way to work together. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. This has been fun. Thanks, Miles. Really appreciate you having me. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.